This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. And today I'm joined by conceptual artist Sarah Dixon. Sarah explores participatory art making, ritual and symbolic magic. And today we will talk about her practice and the role of art in contemporary society. Thank you very much for joining me, Sarah. Welcome. Thank you, Inna. It's great to be here. My first question is meant to introduce you to our listeners. You have worked in Ecuador and the Hindu Kush and have studied art from orthodox icon painting to corporate design, quite a versatile background. Could you expand on that? How has your artistic journey developed? I think it was really when I was a teenager that I started to really love to paint and to make art. And I was spending a lot of time in the art studio at school, but I was also doing one in physics and math. So I was really encouraged to focus on the science side of things. And that led to me studying biology. And I absolutely love biology. I love studying it. I was particularly interested in ecological aspects and nature, like being out in the forests studying rather than the lab type of biologist. And, and so through that interest, I was invited to join two scientists at the university I was working at, studying at, to go to Ecuador with them, where they were collecting butterflies to look at speciation, which is how do species, new species form. And this type of butterfly um, rapidly forms new species because it, its wing patterns are very important in its survival of whether birds eat them or not. So it was a very good example in nature of uh, for the geneticists to have a look at that. So we got to Ecuador and out of that, I started to form connections in Ecuador and it eventually led to my working on a project with some people in the rainforest, spending a few months there and learning about how the people in the rainforest are living and also educating around money and tourism so that their goal was to start to build some resistance to the exploration for oil that was happening and still is happening now. That was a long time ago. It's about 20 years ago now. And so I made this collaboration with the people in the rainforest out of that biological study. But when I came back to the UK, I needed a job. It, I found that actually all these kinds of experiences weren't really job applicable. And I found also that although I'm very inspired by science and biology in particular, I'm actually creative, like innately creative. I have to make things. And so in terms of work, that was going to be necessary for me to adapt. So at that point, that's when I studied corporate design. And then I just started to really want to explore actually what is it to be an artist? What is it to be a commentator. I'd learned so much from my experiences. I wanted to share and express these ideas that I was learning about through the science side of things. What are these ideas? One to me is super important is about, so it comes from ecological ideas actually, but it's the idea that our culture is just as important in shaping us as our sort of innate, what we're born with. And <clears throat> I know that's a long ancient discussion, but I do think that in this Western culture, we tend to think of the individual part of it as much more important. And we are surrounded by ideas about you. You need to achieve for yourself. You need to change your thinking so that you can solve your problems just by changing what's going on inside your head. There's a lot of emphasis on what we can do as individuals. I think there's less understanding of how our environment determines our behavior, our choices, our feelings. And to me, that's super important. There's something, it's about the relationship between 
the organism and the environment that creates the outcome. It's not really in the organism and it's not in the environment. It's something about the interaction between the two. And so through through art making, that's where I'm able to explore that. I can make little kind of experimental pots of different types of culture and see what that does, see what kinds of behaviours emerge in people from putting them in different contexts. So how does that translate into actual art, into participatory art making and your ritual magic? Could you expand on that, please? One example is the 100 Gondesses show that I ran earlier this year. In January, I set an intention to create 100 paintings of different goddesses from around the world. And some of them I quote made up. So I just had an idea and painted that as if it was a goddess, like goddess of disappointments or goddess of shame. And others are more from very established traditions, Greek goddesses, but also Hindu and Aztec, all different all around the world I was looking into. And then when I had these 100 paintings, I put a show. So I had a gallery space, decorated it with gold walls and put up these 100 images, right? And this is where the artwork really came to life. So it's more than some paintings that you look at on a wall. It's an immersive experience. And the difference, the thing, the reason it's different from what we normally experience in our culture is that it's all female or there's some hermaphrodites. There's some like not a bit non-binary as well, but it's very different kind of visual iconography than we would normally experience. And that's what has the impact. So people coming into a space where they're completely surrounded by feminine powers. And so that's had an impact on people. They were laughing. Some people were crying when they came in or when they saw a particular one. And I think there's something about that immersion in something a bit different that is what allows people to experience something new and then realize, ah, you can then take that sense of possibility with you into your life and perhaps realize just how much we are surrounded by male masculine type powers and our whole culture is so framed around those kinds of power so that's one example there's another where i collaborate with another artist called sharon bennett and we formed a group called the women's art activation system and last year we had a commission to work with a group of researchers in manchester metropolitan university looking into how can social art which is the participatory engaging with the public how can that change policies in institutions? And so we decided that we wanted to work at the National Gallery in London. We didn't have permission, but we also didn't not have permission. We just went there as a, as a regular visitor. And out of that, we devised a board game, like a game with stickers. And the game is to find all the paintings in the gallery which show a woman breastfeeding. And when you find them, you stick your sticker on the board to show that you found it. And this is something that when people experience it, they say it just allows them to look at that collection in a different way. They have a different experience because normally we're looking for the famous nudes or the battle scenes. There's a lot of religious painting. And just to give a different lens. So instead of changing the walls, we just create a game through which people can experience what's on the walls in a different way. And what was the feedback from others who participated in that? What did they say? Some of them said they felt, they looked at, they, so, uh, several people who took part in some of our sort of hosted sessions, they knew the gallery quite well. And they just said that gave them a really fresh look at it, at the collection, a different experience. 
the idea is you're centering the reproductive experience. The breastfeeding is a very visceral thing. It's a very intense thing. It's actually not, quotes, natural. It's something you have to learn. It's a skill that you and your baby have to learn. And in, in it's when you're going through breastfeeding, you may be immersed in like Facebook groups, internet groups, looking for support. You might getting health support from the health service. Uh, or you might not be, and you might be really struggling. Uh, this, it's a very emotional and visceral experience. But it's not something that we generally in society think about much, apart from sometimes there's a fuss because somebody complained about somebody breastfeeding. So for women to experience that in particular, they just get to see, look at the National Gallery collection as if breastfeeding was the most important thing in the show. And that just flips your experience. And they also said it also helps to focus because the gallery is so big and just to have some thread to take them through it, they found really useful. I could just grab a quote, actually, because I feel like I need to express something which I haven't quite got to yet. This is nice. This is Anna MacDonald, who was one of the researchers. The work we met, they made at the National Gallery kept me moving between the sticky body, kitsch, sugary chocolate and the heavens, the smallness of the stickers, the tactile memory of stickering was such a long way from the permanence and grandeur of the artworks on show. It gave me a sense of ownership, like I was on a secret mission that was mine and not to be messed with. So I think there was something about sense of ownership. It was opened a, a bit of a portal into, rather than being dominated by this thing, it turns it around and makes it into a sense of ownership came through with a few different people, I think. Absolutely. It's actually a great thing and a great approach in modern art that people can not only admire works of art, but feel them and experience them because it's a completely different level of understanding and being part of it. And what about the magic? What kind of thing is that? <laughs> sometimes I do that in a more playful way and sometimes more serious. One of the serious projects that I created was with a group of women. So I was part of a big collective 33 women that came together just before the pandemic and we worked on zoom through for a couple of years it's called the silver spoons and the idea was we, we were looking at the way that the accusation of witchcraft had impacted european women and culture and how it still plays out today that there are memes and tropes patterns that are still present around what it is to be a witch and out of that, I came up with a project which was not really directly related to that, but it was to do with ancestry. And so I, my idea was to take some family silver, so an inherited silver precious object, and melt and cut the silver and create a new set of objects because I felt these objects represented old values that I didn't want to carry forward and I didn't want to pass on to my daughter. So we used ritual and magic because working together, I had a group of about four, uh, there were four of us working together and we did the cutting and the melting through ritual. And I think that is particularly useful when, so there's something about the, so we can look at in, from the science point of view, it's just a piece of silver, right? It's been dug out of the ground by some machines on, and some people probably maybe enslaved at some point or whatever. We don't know the history exactly precisely, but we know that somehow that metal has been dug from the ground and then it's been shaped into a pretty object, engraved, given meaning, cultural meaning. And then it has a commercial value. So it becomes part of commodities and business. And it's also creative because somebody has to design the shapes and so on. But that's just, that doesn't embody the deeper layers. So the idea of magic is that 
the silver itself, one of the aspects is that the silver itself is, a, is an agent. It has its own history, its own life and its own desires, the metal. And then on another layer, as those people engage with the silver, they are putting their kind of values and energies into the silver work. And these are invisible things. These are not things that a scientist can measure or find or identify or pin down. And yet we can, as a human being, act as a kind of instrument to detect those things. And ritual and thinking about it in that kind of slightly magical way is a way for the human being to become this very sensitive instrument that can discover things that the materials and processes and objects of science can't can't discover. And through the ritual, it's a collaborative thing. So there's a group of support. It's sometimes called sisterhood. There's questions around how we call this kind of relationship, but... There's something about this intention of people coming together to, to do some deeper work, something in the invisible. And that's what I'm, I really find that fascinating, partly because I think I learned some of it in the rainforest. You can, the people there are living in a way that is considered completely normal and valid. Like it's not a question. It's just, that is part of the reality. The human body is a scientific instrument and it's way more sophisticated and subtle than the ones we've made external to our bodies. So it links with that. And it's my art practice is a place where I can, again, explore, like what kinds of rituals do we need? What kind of rituals can cause change? And can they cause change? So it's experimenting all the time. In your opinion, how much are ancient rituals that originated in the Middle Ages, for instance, still present in our culture? And how do they impact us, our mental patterns and our behavior? That's a really big question. First, I would say ancient. We can go back thousands and thousands of years to look at ancient rituals. And the Middle Ages is relatively quite recent. So in the Middle Ages in Europe, there would have been a lot of Christianity coming in. So the rituals becoming determined by the church, by priests. And that's a very specific set of rituals that we have a lot of. But we also have things like bureaucratic rituals, like exams in school. That's a, we don't, what I think is important is that we don't recognize them as rituals. We think they have external reality. And I think it's more sophisticated and more useful and safer to understand when we are doing rituals and to know what they are, dot perform rituals all the time. They have, in fact, it's linked to the witch hunts because part of that was, so there were doctors, writers, the equivalent of kind of tabloid journalists and priests and between them and some government people and some kings, <laughs> but with real, very clear political power. But there were also doctors and priests taking part quite fully in this kind of misogynistic campaign. And part of that was about doctors replacing the midwives, the healers, with Western medicine, kind of official doctor medicine. And they, so they are equally ritualistic, but they don't, they claim to be the truth. And so we lose sight of what rituals we're taking part in. When we go to the doctor, we don't fully comprehend that this is a ritual magic enactment. It's not reality. And we can get to empower ourselves more if we understand that because then we can say well, I don't want to do that ritual that way I don't that doesn't it's the ritual so I get to change it it's not an objective scientific truth it gives us more agency more creativity in the kinds of processes and how we want to engage in them I agree that going to a doctor is a ritual to some extent but still there is some science involved it's always layered rituals in ancient culture 
they would also have scientific reality behind them. So if we look at, I don't know, like a very classic thing of Stonehenge or those stone sculptures that we have in the UK, the um, circles, they're based very carefully on very precise measurements of the sun and the moon moving around the earth. And that's a way for people to measure their time and to measure their survival patterns. So particularly in former times, getting through the winter was a serious survival matter. There was very little food. It was very cold. A lot of people would die every winter. So it was super important to know where you were in winter, how much food you had left, how much time you needed to eke out that food and keep surviving and measuring is it the temperatures and so on. So those rituals are linked to external reality. And if we we can never actually, in a philosophical sense, we can never get to external reality. It's always something created in our head, inside our body. But, underst but understanding the layer, there's a ritual layer and there's an external reality layer. And we can always be exploring creatively that tension between those things. There's another aspect of ritual. And I'd like to say that some of the ancient rituals are very much alive today. There are plenty, like in the rainforest or other places all around the world, there are places where people do this. There's a few basic patterns. One is they people gather together. Another is there's not really much hierarchy in ancient, what we call indigenous type practices. There may be a, le a leader, a guide, and there's that varies a bit, but often they're fairly non-hierarchical and quite often, particularly if women do it, women tend to like to be in low, lesser hierarchy, less extreme hierarchy. But really key things are standing in a circle, having a fire and drumming. And there's something about the drumming and singing and dancing as well that takes the whole body, the nervous system, into a different state. And through neuroscience, we're finding language in English now to describe things that are already known in the sense of through experience in eight very ancient rituals. And neuroscience is meeting that and creating new language around things like co-regulation, nervous system regulation. It's drumming and singing are core ways for people to feel connected to each other and safe. And that, again, is, comes down to really how do we live? How do we keep ourselves alive and look after each other? <coughs> look after each other. Those patterns are very common across the world. And then through like monotheism, you've got the churches and there's a much stronger hierarchy, but they still have the singing and also the sensory experience, like either a very quiet room with very little light or maybe very sharp pointed light through one window. Uh, they have candles, they have scent, incense, um, chanting. So you can see the similar patterns and they're the things that allow us to relax, to yeah. enter a different space, a creative and open-minded space. What about art? It is actually a ritual as well. As you said, in ancient practices, it was part of the ritual. It was the way they lived. Later, say, in the Christian tradition, it was part of the religious culture. Now art is somewhat independent. How does it work in contemporary society and what role does it have? For me, again, one thing that's really useful to do is to look at how art it means something different in, another, in different cultures and times because that helps us reflect and extract the difference between a ritual and culture from external reality. And one of the things I've learned, for example, in what my strongest sense is that it's always a reflection of the people who make it and not just the individual person, but the culture that in which those people live always is a kind of, it's a kind of fruit from the body of human culture. And <clears throat> so if we look at it, 
that way we can scope, we can step back a bit, zoom out a bit and look at what's being made and what's being valued. The way money and art work together is very interesting to me in this very capitalistic setting, you know, that a few artists can make vast fortunes and then there's huge amounts of people making things and creating, but it's not found a place within that kind of commercial system. But even when it's in the commercial system, it's really reflecting the values of those people who are who have access to very large amounts of money to exchange. And it becomes part of a game in a way. It becomes part of a kind of gambling banker's game. Often it's used, known to be used for money laundering, like you can buy art and claim it against tax. You can there's all sorts of ways in which artworks which are very, really, it's quite extreme of how nebulous the value of an item is. There was a, there was that quite famous event where an artist gaffer taped a banana to a wall at an art fair. And I think he sold it for $30,000 or something like that. You can't say a banana with some gaffer tape is worth $30,000. So how is that value created? And I think that part is really interesting. Who is paying that money? What is the relationship? It's really expression of the relationship between the artist and the person paying. Absolutely. Art today is part of the capitalist system, as you yeah. said. But still there is some ritual part to it in terms of the, the boom of performance art and conceptual art. So how does it all mix together, in your opinion? Even those auctions, art auctions, that's another type of ritual that people gather, they there's a tension, there's an excitement. There's the auction that was, again, quite a well-known covered one in the media where an artist, Banksy, had sold an artwork at auction and then immediately the artwork was shredded in front of the entire audience. It was, it's like, it is a performance, it's theatre, it's dramatic theatre because there's large amounts of money exchanging. So there's this drama, people are, there's something at stake. And he really played the theater of the art auction room and highlighted and that allowed us to glimpse behind the curtain into the construction and value that's going on in this room. It's secular, so there isn't a, there, this is where it gets interesting because it isn't consciously recognized as a spiritual practice. People don't go to art auctions to pray. And yet... I think again, there's some, it is there. It's just, it's not being acknowledged. It's not being recognized as that. I think the logic behind is that, that art is still considered something spiritual and through auction and through interaction with it, you get connected to that spiritual layer. I definitely think that's always been important and continues to be. It's almost like capitalism can't kill that. It just, it's like weeds in the cracks in the tarmac like it just will always keep bursting forth because it's needed it's part of being alive is to express what that feels like and that's what art does for people it allows us to connect with something invisible something beyond this very practical reality that we also inhabit i know that you also have experience with nfts you create nfts how does that work for you and what kind of experience is that for you <laughs> That also is me experimenting and <clears throat> I'd actually started creating some digital artworks before NFTs really became a thing. And when they, when that started to appear on the scene, I thought, oh, these works are obviously designed for this. <laughs> they're already digital. So that was, uh, they're called emotions. And the idea was to take emotional experiences on the internet and turn them into visual things I made 
like gifts, text and graphic design and gifts. Yeah, so I've explored, I've dipped my toe in the pool in this open sea of NFTs and, and had a little look around. It, it's, it's, it's weird and fascinating. It's a whole new level of the internet and of the art market. The most popular work tends to be very brash, almost it's in the realm of graffiti type art, pop art, graffiti art, very colorful, sometimes quite aggressive kind of imagery. But then there's a huge, much bigger scene. Those are the big names, but the, but there's a really interesting complex scene as well going on. And really a lot of it is driven about, it is again, it comes back to gambling. It's like people are kind of guessing what's going to go up in value, collecting things. There's a collector's element. So yes, some people are just really into it and want to spend their money on it, but there is definitely an element of, wow, this is a bit of a gold rush. Who's going to make loads of money and how are we going to do it? And let's tr try our luck on this crazy new wheel of invention. And it feels very open and very exciting and also very, in some ways, exclusive because you need good internet, but you also need, there's a lot of jargon to learn. There's a lot of language and systems that may be unfamiliar to a lot of people. So it's quite a barrier to get involved into it in that sense that you have quite a bit of a learning curve around how it actually works, like the mechanism. If we look at it from the point of view of this ritual side, it's actually a shift from tangible art that you can sense to digital art, to something you can only see and not experience with your other senses. What do you think about that? The really kind of fascinating and somewhat new thing about NFT is that yeah, because it's digital, a lot of it can just be completely replicated indefinitely. So the whole concept of copyright isn't really there. What you've got instead of copyright, of ownership, of that coming back to that idea of ownership, you don't own the artwork or the image, but you own the fact that you paid for it. <laughs> and that's what gets embedded in the blockchain. It's like a record of the transaction. That's what you're actually paying for. And so you get the sat like the invisible satisfaction of knowing that you were the one who put your money down in the blockchain on that particular image. But the image could be replicated all over the world. Like there's no nothing to stop people just screenshotting everything and so on. There are ways that they're getting more sophisticated. So you now have hit things hidden inside them. You might have an art, I could make my goddesses, and then I could also send the buyer an original painting in the post. So they also have something physical or I could create a performance for them, or I could write them a script or have a phone call like there's, or they can have games that open up inside the, when they buy it, something gets released and more digital stuff appears that's only available to them because they paid. So there's, they are growing layers of making it quite complex and interactive. The fact that we have less physical things, furniture, books, in your opinion, how does it change our perception of the world and our society at its core i think that is a type of dissociation coming back to biology that's a disembodiment it's a desire to escape this physical realm and go into the realm of fantasies and images and imagination it's perfectly valid but it's i think it I don't know. I think it can embody problems. I think it's important to remain embodied. And so I like the idea of these ancient rituals that are just very simple ways to really embody a feeling, really come into the earth, into the groundedness. I think it links to the ideas of it's religious, Christian, Jew Jewish, and Islam, the monotheistic religions, not so much Judaism, actually, I don't think, but it's, it, Christianity especially is very much about you've got to go to heaven, escape this world. doesn't matter if this world is terrible. 
because if your quote's good, you get to this magical other place and God is up in the sky, right? So up far away, not in this world. But the goddess religions, the earth religions, ancient rituals, contemporary rituals, there's a lot around connecting with the earth. And I think for me, I think that's really important because it's our disconnection from our bodies, from each other and from earth that drives a lot of really destructive patterns and behaviors that actually come back and become harmful to us. Yeah. I think there's a desire to escape. And I understand that because also physical life can be difficult and painful and digital world serves that desire. It feeds that fantasy that we can somehow live in the ethereal realms. My last question is a traditional question for all my guests, and it's related to the title of my podcast, Being Modern, Being Human. What does it mean to you, being modern and being human today? Being human is something we are born into an evolutionary history that goes back millions of years. So that something there is very profound and unchanging. And then modern is like, the space where we get to be creative, explore and reinvent what that could be. And that's what excites me that this moment of being alive, we, my body is, a, is an evolutionary pattern that has been passed down through thousands, millions of years. But I have this little moment to inhabit this body. And that's what the modernity is. It's a moment where we get to experiment, create and explore. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's Thanks. been a pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Great. Thank you for listening. A new episode of Being Modern, Being Human will come out in two weeks, as usual. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review on one of your favorite platforms. That will help others discover the podcast. In the meantime, take care and have a good time.